If you have Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and make your way to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. If you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles that are available for you under your chair or nearby, uh, page 874 is where we'll be in that black hardcover Bible today. Uh, In lieu of doing another announcement time this month, since we're having uh, moments in our service devoted to learning about these issues of mercy and justice, just want to encourage you to pay extra close attention to the bulletin uh, and your weekly email and the things that are coming up there. There's even some new things or some irregular things happening uh, this month, like one of our two annual um, church vision and budget meetings coming up in a few weeks. Uh, We're hosting a brand new thing, if you're newer or disconnected here, called the Liberty 101. That's happening two weeks from today, right after the service. So just want to encourage you to pay attention to your your bulletin or uh, weekly email for all the details about that. Uh, Last week, we began what's going to be a two-month series looking at selected parables that Jesus shared during his life and ministry. Um, Parables are stories that illustrate big truths about God, Uh, about humanity, uh, and about the kingdom of God. And what's been striking to me personally in reading through some of these parables in recent months is just how many of Jesus' parables speak about mercy, uh, both the mercy of God and then the mercy that we are called to show. And so during this month where we are calling one another to prayer and awareness about these kinds of issues, uh, it just seems to make sense to focus in on parables that deal with, with mercy. Most of the time when Jesus uh, tells his parables, he directs them to his disciples, to his followers, or to a larger crowd that is uh, gathered around him. What's unique about the parable that we're looking at today in Luke 14 is that it's actually directed to a small group of Pharisees, uh, the religious leaders that were um, ruling, leading in Jesus' day. One of the leaders of the Pharisees invites Jesus into his home. But what we see really quickly at the beginning of Luke 14 is that it's not a social pleasantry. That actually the the, the Pharisees are scrutinizing Jesus. They are looking for ways to undermine him. They're looking for ways to ultimately bring about his end. And so Jesus arrives at the home of this leader of the Pharisees, and coincidentally, a sick man shows up at the same exact time. Luke's wording of this is great. It says, behold, a sick man. Behold, a sick man was there. It's the Sabbath... It's this day that God has set apart for rest and worship, and the Pharisees have have widened their definition and interpretation of what that means to the thousandth degree. They've spelled out in minute detail all the things you can and cannot do on the Sabbath day. So it becomes clear really quickly that the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. Will he violate their interpretation of the law, or will he send this sick man away without being cared for, without being healed? Which, this is always a great way to make your guests feel welcomed in your home, right? Put them to the test. Put them to the test. Hey, Jesus, before we sit down, before we eat, I was wondering if maybe you'd be interested in incriminating yourself in front of all of these witnesses. Jesus, of course, chooses mercy and compassion, and he heals this sick man. And this small group of Pharisees can't think of anything to say in response to Jesus. And so what Jesus does then is he takes the opportunity to point out in parable form how the Pharisees have really adopted a warped view of God's kingdom. And these are the, these are the religious leaders of the day. They're supposed to be the stewards of the things of God. And yet what we find out is that they themselves do not know God's ways. 
And so Jesus, in essence, is saying, hey, since you've been such ideal hosts, let me in turn be the ideal guest and point out what's wrong with this picture. And so as we pick it up in verse 12, I want you to feel the tension and the awkwardness of this interaction. Some of us just came out of the holidays. We had some awkward, intense family moments. This makes your awkward, intense family moment look like leave it to beaver. Okay? Hosts seeking to entrap their guest, guest rebuking his host. That's the setting of the parable of the great banquet. I'm going to read Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 24. You can follow along with me. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married. I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Help us now to hear and hearing, help us to believe and believing, help us to obey what you say to us today. I pray this by your spirit and for the sake of your name. Amen. So three things really unfold in these verses. We'll spend a little bit of time looking at each. There's a pointed rebuke, there's an attempted redirection, and there's a sobering reminder. Pointed rebuke, attempted redirection, sobering reminder. So first, a pointed rebuke. Verse 12, Jesus says, directly to this leader of the Pharisees, the one who invited him, the one in whose home he is currently a guest, he says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do it the exact opposite way of the way you've done this one. Do it the exact opposite way. The Pharisees invite their friends, they invite their families, they invite their wealthy neighbors into their homes. Um, they do exactly what you and I are inclined to do, and that is to base our hospitality on reciprocity. We base our hospitality on reciprocity. In other words, I will invite you into my home, I will invite you to my table, I will invite you into my life, if that is somehow beneficial for me. If you have something that you can then give me in return. Maybe it's a reciprocal invite into your home or into your life. Maybe it's a favor, you putting in a good word with me, for me, with some of the influential people that you know. 
But some way, there's going to be some kind of added value to my life that comes because I'm showing hospitality to you. But what Jesus says is that the kingdom of God is not about reciprocity. It's instead about mercy and grace. And hospitality in God's kingdom is truly a gift. It's not an exchange. Right? When I hope for something or expect something in return from those I invite into my home, that's really an exchange. That's bartering. That's giving you what I have in order that I might get from you what you have. And so in this rebuke, Jesus calls the Pharisees to be people of mercy, to be people who show mercy to the marginalized, the vulnerable, the outcasts of their society. Specifically, he mentions the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. And these are people who, according to the laws given to Moses many centuries earlier, they're the people that were actually excluded from serving in the priesthood because of these conditions that they have. And the way that the Pharisees have interpreted that and extrapolated that out and added to it over time is to really just distance themselves as much as possible from anybody with conditions like that, anybody who's marginalized. In their view, these people have nothing to offer them. They aren't adding any value to their lives or their ability to be near God or worship God, and so they're not interested in these types of people. But Jesus' mercy here stands in stark contrast to that. And in his healing of this sick man, Jesus displays God's merciful and compassionate and hospitable heart for the marginalized. It's as if he says through his actions, and then of course through his words as well, you know that sick man who was just here? If you really want to be stewards of the things of God, then next time, rather than inviting him here as, as bait to entrap me, invite him to dinner too. Invite him to stick around for the meal. I think many of us see the beauty in what Jesus is teaching here. And I think perhaps we, we see the beauty of this maybe even more this time of year after just coming through another round of holiday festivities. Because don't you just feel sucked into reciprocity around the holidays? You hosted last year, so they better take their turn hosting this year. Or you invited them to your party, so they better invite you to theirs. Or wondering whether someone is going to buy a gift for you or buy a gift for your kids so that you can make sure to show up with a gift for them or their kids in return. Right? Because, God forbid, we receive something that we don't repay. Or even worse, that we give something to someone else that is not repaid. Right? We function on reciprocity. Our lives function on exchanges. And so perhaps you hear Rachel and Michelle talk about the opportunities to resettle refugees in our area, and it's really appealing. And I would submit to you that at least part of the reason that that's really appealing is because there is a beauty and a simplicity and a freedom to the way life works and is meant to work in the kingdom of God. And certainly, refugees are among the most marginalized, vulnerable people in our communities. They've been, as you heard, uprooted from their homes. Often, they don't even have a desire to leave at all. And they, have, they don't have a desire to be here in the United States. We tend to look at them and say, what a privilege it is you can come to the United States. Well, they don't want to be here. They'd rather be in their home. Maybe a couple members of their family know some English. Maybe, maybe someone has gotten a job, but they have real needs, and they're in no position in all of their need to repay. So we see the beauty of this, of giving something to them that cannot be repaid. Why don't we do it? Why don't we do it? What's the obstacle that keeps us from a lifestyle of merciful hospitality instead of our default 
of reciprocity. I'm going to ask you to hang on to that thought because the answer has everything to do with what Jesus teaches in this parable. But before he gets to this parable, after this pointed rebuke, second, there is an attempted redirection. Verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. All of us have a different tolerance level for awkward and tense moments. You might be one of those strange people that loves awkward and tense moments. You thrive on it. You love seeing people squirm. You love watching the drama unfold when there's a tense and awkward situation happening around you. Okay, I am not that guy. I am actually that guy on closer to the, to the far end of the, uh, the spectrum, the other end of the spectrum, where like, even when it's not in person, it's in a movie, I'm the guy dry heaving because it's so uncomfortable in the awkwardness and tension. And that means that I'm actually a lot more like this man in verse 15. Okay, this is a tense, awkward interchange, an entrapped guest and rebuked hosts reclining around a table together. This guy in verse 15 has the lowest tolerance for that, and he cracks first. And it's a, it's a master's level evasive maneuver, right? It is a master's level evasive maneuver. Nothing redirects conversation among religious people like talking about the end of the world. Won't it be great when we're all in heaven together, right? It's the, the old divine dodge, right? The pious punt, the spiritual sidestep, the apocalyptic avoidance, could go on. He's trying to relieve the tension. He's trying to relieve the tension, and I get it because I've done it. Because I've done it, and I've heard a lot of other Christians do it where we offer a completely true statement in the wrong moment in order to avoid the issue at hand. For example, in the midst of the tension that exists in our country right now between minority communities and law enforcement, different movements have emerged. There's Black Lives Matter. There's Blue Lives Matter. And it's tense. And there's hostility in these groups toward the other. And so occasionally, I think often in effort to relieve some of that tension, you have others who try to step in and say what? All lives matter. All lives matter. Verse 15 is the all lives matter guy. Verse 15 is the all lives matter guy. Is that true? Completely. All lives do matter because all people are created in the image of God and are worthy of respect and dignity because of that. But is that avoiding the substance of the issues at hand to say all lives matter in a dismissive way in the midst of this debate? Absolutely. It's a pious-sounding, evasive maneuver. And unless you're really willing to engage in the topic at hand, it will accomplish absolutely nothing. Now, Jesus doesn't buy it. Of course Jesus believes. He's the one coming, proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's the one teaching about this. Of course he believes that it's amazing that people will share in the kingdom of God. That's a beautiful reality. And there are many moments where it's the right time to celebrate and to enjoy that. But this is not that moment. And so rather than to allow an avoidance and a redirection, Jesus actually ratchets the awkwardness and tension level up another couple notches. Won't it be great... When we're all in heaven together, says this man, Jesus responds with a parable that in essence says, what if you're not there? What if you're not 
there. So before we keep going, just don't miss this. Jesus' approach depicts the value of awkward and tense interactions. And it's a caution to people like me and perhaps like many of you who naturally are inclined to avoid or to relieve or to resolve moments like these. Maybe even to, re- to relieve or resolve them with something that sounds pious. When you're inclined to do that, pause and ask yourself, does redirecting or relieving the tension here serve this person well? Or does it actually harm them? In Luke 14, it would do this man's soul no good at all to permit this redirection. It would do the souls of the others around the table no good at all. What these dinner party guests really need in this moment is to wrestle with and come to terms with some difficult truths. And so Jesus refuses to oblige this attempted redirection. So should we. Third, and what unfolds in the rest of this passage is a sobering reminder. The parable of the, the great banquet is a reminder that you actually have to accept God's invitation in order to enter his kingdom. It's a warning against the presumption of the Pharisees who assume that because of their ancestry, because of their religious activity, that they have a place secured for them with God for all eternity. And Jesus says, not so fast, not so fast. In this parable, the man throwing the banquet is a picture of God. And the original invitees, they are the people of Israel. They are the descendants of Abraham, the chosen people of God. But when the banquet is prepared, the servant, which is a picture of Jesus, comes to those who were originally invited. And he says, hey, everything is now ready. The banquet is now prepared. And when we see Jesus in his life and ministry, when we see him enter the scene, one of the first things that he does, he goes around proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. He's doing exactly what he's describing in the parable. He's saying the time is here, the time is now. Despite their initial RSVP, the original invitees, they make excuses about why they can no longer come. And they're not really good excuses. I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. A lot of you own property or own your home. When do you examine property that you're buying? I hope you examine it before you buy it and not after. Same thing with five yoke of oxen. It'd be a lot of oxen. That'd be a large landowner. You would examine your purchase like that before and not after. The I got married excuse is perhaps the most valid of the three. Uh, there were provisions in the law where a man could, could uh, take a year off of serving uh, in the military so that he might establish a good foundation for his marriage so that he and his wife might begin, to, uh, begin having children, or at least trying to have children. But contrary to what perhaps many 20-somethings in our day think, marriage does not render you incapable of attending parties. And it does not render you incapable of keeping an RSVP that you made before you were married. Even if there's truth in the excuses, even if there's truth in them, they all communicate that the day-to-day things going on in their lives are more important than accepting this invitation. In their own way, each of these three individuals is saying, the the stuff I've got going on, the things that my life is involved in and I'm about right now, that is what is important to me. And so in, in their place, the master sends the servant to bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And it's not a coincidence that those are the very same groups mentioned back in verse 13 when Jesus called the Pharisees to invite 
those groups into their banquets. When Jesus comes proclaiming the time has come, the religious leaders don't listen to him. And so what we then see in Jesus' life and ministry, he spends a ton of time around the outcasts of the people of Israel. He spends a ton of time around people who need to be healed, a ton of people who are plagued by evil spirits, a ton of time around tax collectors who have sold out to the Roman government, right? They're working on behalf of the Roman government. And he spends a ton of time around people who are simply referred to as sinners. He invites them into the kingdom of God. When he's rejected by the original invitees, he invites them into the kingdom of God. And then, because it says in verse 22 there is still room, and because as it says in verse 24, 23, that God's house will be filled, he and his disciples will go to the highways and the hedges. They will go outside the walls of Israel to all of the non-Israelite Gentiles, and they will co- and compel them to come into the kingdom of God. So all of this serves as a sobering reminder. You have to actually accept God's invitation to enter his kingdom. It's not about being born into a Christian family. It's not about church attendance. It's not about religious activity. What Jesus is illustrating in this parable is that some who expect to be present at this banquet will not be there. They'll be excluded And they will only have themselves to blame because when the time came, they made excuses. They rejected not only the invitation, but the messenger himself. So two responses that Jesus' words in this text call us to. First one, let's not gloss over this. The first one is this. Accept Jesus' invitation to, to enter the kingdom of God. Accept Jesus' invitation to enter the kingdom of God. You are invited. You are invited. And don't miss the wonder of this, that Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God, and when the original invitees rejected him, he didn't fret, he didn't pout, he didn't quit, but he opened the banquet to you and me. He made room at his table for you. Will you accept this invitation? Will you see Jesus not as an obstacle as the Pharisees saw him, not merely as an enlightened example to follow as our contemporary world tends to see him, but will you see and believe in him as the one who laid down his life and rose in victory over death to accomplish your salvation? Who did all of that to give you a place with him in God's kingdom now and forever? This is the mercy of our God that he comes and invites we who could never repay. His hospitality is not based on reciprocity, but on mercy and grace and compassion. Some in this room, perhaps many in this room, have accepted that invitation. But the danger is that now we'll presume upon it, that we'll treat it the way that maybe we're tempted to treat other kinds of social invitations. Of course, I'm wanted at that party. Of course God wants me at his party. And I think I'll go. I'll definitely go so long as nothing better or more appealing comes along in the meantime. Don't forget that it is mercy that opens a seat at the table for you. Don't drift into the presumption that deceives you into thinking that you don't need that mercy anymore. That's what the original invitees do in this parable. They've forgotten the miracle it is that they were invited to this banquet in the first place. 
And it's become so commonplace, it's become so normal, so expected, that when the time comes, the banquet is at or below the same priority level as their day-to-day lives and responsibilities. To the degree that they reject God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Will we forget the miracle of mercy? Will we see ourselves as deserving and then reject Jesus' invitation? Or will we continually see ourselves as the needy people we are and receive the mercy of Jesus? Our second response is to mirror the mercy of God. Mirror the mercy of God. This passage begins with Jesus calling people to live mercifully, to show hospitality, to show compassion, especially to those who can never repay. Even if that's an appealing way to live, why are we so bad at offering mercy? Why are we struggle with that? Why are we so bad at offering mercy? And the answer is this. It's because we're bad at receiving mercy. It's because we're bad at receiving mercy. That is the obstacle. There are other obstacles, of course. We explain mercy away. We explain it out of our lives by talking about safety and security and pragmatic and logistical concerns and about how little time or little capacity we have. Deep down, the real obstacle to a lifestyle of mercy is that we have either rejected, forgotten, or are failing to perceive the mercy we ourselves have been shown. Because we are in that moment not receiving the mercy that God is holding out to us. Our mercy, the mercy we show to others, is a mirror of the mercy of God. Our banquets, it says in this text, are meant to mirror the great banquet, where the guests are those who cannot repay. And we live that way because before God, we are those who cannot repay. So we're calling one another to this lifestyle of mercy this month. But that will always Today and always, that will always first be a call to receive mercy. Because apart from receiving mercy, all you're doing is building your life upon reciprocity and exchanges. Am I doing enough for God? Am I doing enough for others? Am I helping and inviting the right people so I can get something in return from them? Am I serving God enough so I can get something in return from Him? It's hard to receive. It's hard to receive. It's humbling, it's humiliating even to be in such a place of great desperation and dependence. That is why, particularly to our modern sensibilities in the West, in the 21st century, salvation is so scandalous and offensive because it is grounded in this truth that you and I cannot do this. But friends, what I would say to you in closing is live there. Live there. Live in that place of desperation and dependence. And not just at the start of your Christian life when you first put your faith in Jesus. Live there every single day, immersed in your dependence. Consciously aware of the mercy that God has shown you in giving you a place at his table. That is the only thing that can fuel and sustain our own pursuit of a lifestyle of mercy. And so when you find yourself, and maybe many of you are there right now, when you find yourself failing to live a life of mercy, when you find yourself paralyzed by compassion fatigue, when it becomes easy to turn a a blind eye or a calloused heart toward the marginalized and oppressed or the outcasts of society, 
Don't just resolve in that moment in your own strength and good intentions to undertake a heroic effort. Instead, go back to your own need for the mercy of God. Go back to your own need for the mercy of God. And in that place, receive mercy. Because it is held out for you. You are invited. And the mercy of God is held out for you. So receive God's mercy that we might truly show God's mercy. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you have come into this world and you display the heart of God for the desperate, the oppressed, and the marginalized. We are those before God who could never repay, who could never buy our way in or give you something in return to have a seat at your table, and yet you offer it to us freely. You hold out your mercy and your grace to us, Jesus, through your life and your death and your resurrection. That all we must do is see and believe, and you welcome us with hospitality. Pray that we would accept that invitation, that we would not presume upon your finished work and your mercy, that we would accept the invitation that is held out to each of us to enter your kingdom. And I pray that entering your kingdom, that we would be not only once, but all the time renewed in your mercy, that we might show the same mercy to others. Would you, would you grow our love and our compassion for marginalized people in the world as you show us how much mercy you have poured out on us? And I pray that as we come to this table, it would be a clear reminder that you, at, at great and infinite cost to yourself, poured out your mercy. You gave your body, you shed your blood that we might have a seat at the table. Strengthen us by your spirit as we come to this table and send us back out into this world that you love, that we might be conduits of the very same mercy. And we pray this in your name. Amen.